0: Okay, I wanted to um, just uh, change a topic this morning. And um, before I do that, of course, just greetings to all this morning and, and anyone who's visiting, you're most welcome here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a blessing and a privilege for me to be able to, to share the Word of God today. And uh, we know that through His Spirit and through His Word, he has chosen to speak to us in these, the last days. And, um, you know, we need food for the inner man. Just as a car needs fuel, we need fuel for the inner man, food for the inner man. And there's certainly truth in the in the saying in the natural world that you are what you eat, that your natural food intake is important. But it's also very important what you take in spiritually. So we delight to feed on his word. And, you know, the words... The writings and the philosophies of men, they'll pass, but the word of God will endure forever. Amen. And um, I just thought I'd open with a scripture as part of the introduction in the Gospel of John. And in John 6 27, it says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him that God that the Father sealed. So we labor for the good food this morning. Now I covered the Beatitudes in the last um, series of sermons, I interspersed with a couple of, of different ones along the way. But today I want to do something a little different. Uh, I want to start to look at some of the different characters in the Bible and you know, see what we can learn and where we can grow from looking at the various characters in the Bible. You know, the history and lives of the characters of the Bible, it is important. And uh, naturally, we want to come back to the cross and always, um, you know, talk about Jesus anywhere we're, we're preaching. And uh, I believe when we do that through the characters, you'll see that Jesus is pointed to uh, or typified in so many different occasions. So it's important to know about the characters, and it's also beneficial to us. And, you know, you get questions like, how, how did God work through their lives? And um, for his purposes and for his glory. And uh, how can he do the same for us? How amazingly patient and merciful God is towards some of these characters and towards us also in these days. And, um, you know, in the New Testament, we have that scripture, all things work together for, for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And I believe that's evident in many of the Old Testament, particularly characters also. Now, when I was a younger Christian, I really grew through various character studies. As one particularly, I went through, which was on the characters of the kings of Israel. And I found there was so, so much to learn out of it and um, so much to, to dwell on and to look at and to you know, take correction from and take encouragement from. And when we understand that the Bible, and um, I think we'd agree that the Bible is pretty frank in many of its uh, passages, and uh, it's confronting, really, in many. So we understand that it's actual people we're dealing with, and we're looking at their strengths, their weaknesses, and their flaws. And it's written in a manner, I believe, it doesn't seek to embellish or hide the truth. And um, that, I believe, makes it a lot more relevant and real to us. So I wanna start with one of the great characters of the Bible, Abraham. And I guess you could preach a whole series on Abraham, but I want to have a quick look through Abraham and see, you know, he's the great man of faith. He's the father of those of faith. But let's have a closer look, and you'll draw some encouragement from his walk, and you might be surprised by some of the, the things that um, were part of his life and his walk. So just by way of background, you know that Abraham was born about 2,000 years before Christ. And I think the the records say 2,169, to be precise. And if you look at his family tree, you'll see that he's 10 generations down the line from Noah. And he's in the line of Shem. And his father was Terah. And his two brothers were Haran and Nahor. So if you look at Terah, and you have Haran, Nahor, Abraham. And there's a sister in there as well, which was born through another woman. And that's Sarah, so Sarah is correctly Abraham, Well I call him Abraham up to the point where his name, the Lord changes his name to Abraham. So it's true that Sarai was Abraham's sister, and we'll see how that plays out later on in the account of his life. Now Abraham, like Adam and a lot of the other characters from that time, they predate Jacob and his twelve sons, and they were Gentiles. Now, furthermore, we learn from Joshua 24.2 what sort of a nation that Abraham came from. So if we look at Joshua 24.2, it gives a little bit of an insight. It says there, And Joshua said unto all people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side, of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So we can deduce from that that they were idolaters, they were an idolatrous people. They didn't didn't worship the one true God, but many gods and um, many idols. He's called a patriarch, he's called a a Hebrew patriarch, and that's because the root word of, of Hebrew means to cross over. So he crossed over the Euphrates River in his journey to Canaan, and that journey, of course, was initiated by God. And we may ask, why did God call Abram, of all people? Why does God call any of us? You might ask also today, because none of us come unless we're drawn, and salvation is definitely of the Lord. Amen. So Abram's home, again, just a little bit of a background, it was in Ur of the Chaldees and that is ancient Mesopotamia. And we, history and the records tell us that Ur was a very, very prosperous uh, region and had um, what were called ziggurats or, or um, these temples, as you were, that were, um, I guess, almost um, like four-sided pyramids going up, perhaps might even have resembled the Tower of Babel or some similar structure from that area. And um, these people were very, very advanced All you have to do is look at the ancient seven wonders of the world, and you'll find that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, if you read some of the accounts, you'll find that just the magnitude and the size of Babylon, the size of its walls, the incredible engineering of its waterways, these are very, very capable people. And many scholars would believe that Abraham himself was a wealthy and a well-educated man. And again, just just again for background, if you have a look at the present-day map, or even a biblical map, of uh, where Ur is, you'll see that it's south of where the ruins of ancient Babylon are. And it's near a present-day city called Nazaria. And anybody who remembers the account of the Iraq War will remember that Nazarea was a place that was, it was a hotspot, there was a lot of um, conflict there, so. So it's right down the, the southern side of present-day Iraq, down towards the Gulf. And um, it's interesting that in our Bible study last Tuesday, for, for those who were there, we were looking at Daniel 2 and we spoke about the Chaldeans and of course Ur of the Chaldees, and these were a group of the um, advisors or wise men that Nebuchadnezzar had around him. So you can see there's a bit of a tie-in there. Now Ur itself, if you look in the map, it's a long, long way from Canaan or from present-day Israel, from the Promised Land. So Abram, Abram or Abraham, as he became later, he's one of the greatest men in history and of course there's several of the world religions look to him as a spiritual father and as christians of course we see him as the father of those who believe and if you take a quick look at romans four eleven, uh, we can see that romans 4 chapter verse 11 it says there and he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet been uncircumcised, that he may, might be the father of all them that believe, though they, not, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Righteousness by, by faith. Now, Abraham, just to, to home in on a little bit more, we read about him in a particular block of passages in the book of Genesis. And it starts at chapter 11, and it goes right up to his death and burial in chapter 25. And he's also mentioned quite a number of times, over 70 times in the New Testament. Now, Abram did not suddenly become the father of faith. And we'll see that as we just go through the, the, um, the, uh, the study here. We see in his life a progression, where his faith and character, they grow over a period of time. And another well-known verse, if we look at James 2 verse 23, uh, it says, "There. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, "Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God." That's a, a quite a unique description of a character in the Bible to be called the friend of God. I'd like to be called the friend of God. I'd like to, to uh, see him that day, when we come face to face to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. To be called a friend of God, that is a position of real privilege and honor. But there's a story behind that verse. And we see that that Abraham was a great man of faith, but he also had uh, good character traits and character flaws. And he stumbled along the way. He didn't become this um, great man or friend of God instantaneously. There's a story behind him. So we go to Genesis chapter 11, and we see here, that this move to Haran is mentioned. And in Genesis chapter 11, towards the end of the chapter, we read in verse 31 and 32, and Terah took Abraham his son and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abraham's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there And the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. And it would appear from reading that that God is not involved in in the move. But we can qualify further because if we look at um, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, it fills in the picture a little bit more. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, this of course is Stephen when he's about to be stoned to death. He said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the, glory, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So it wasn't that, that, that Abraham and the family just uh, turned up in Haran, then the Lord spoke. God had spoken previously, and that was part of the reason uh, for this move. And said unto him, Get thee out of the country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Now, it's interesting, there's another person present when Stephen was being stoned. That, of course, was was Paul, and he was the persecutor. And uh, we look at what happened to him after. He had an encounter with God, and Abraham had several encounters with God, and it was a life-changing encounter for Paul. And uh, he went out, and he went and became the apostle, of course, to the Gentiles, and is is, um, responsible for so much of the New Testament. So... We would ask the question, did God tell Abraham to stop in Haran? Or perhaps was he influenced by his family? And again, if you look at this Bible map or an ancient Bible map, you'll see the Haran. So it's a long, long way from Canaan. And um, you know, the account uh, indicates that he spent several, several years there. And um, the question is, was he obedient? Uh, people have spoken about that. I suspect he wasn't, I suspect that he should have obeyed and gone to the, the land that God told him to go to. But for whatever reason, he ended up in Haran. And first question you might ask yourself is, what happens to us if we're not obedient, or if we try to do things our own way, or we, we, um, we take a, a side route as it were? And um, you know, how many, t- how many times do bad things happen because we're not operating in God's will? And uh, perhaps more than we might realize. You know, the first thing to think when something bad happens is perhaps to feel um, sorry for for ourselves or perhaps to blame someone else or blame some other reason. But maybe the reason is because we haven't done something we were told to do or haven't been obedient. And uh, we only see, of course, part of the picture in our lives. God sees the end from the beginning. So how many times, I wonder, has God had to bring something into our lives so that we'd uh, change direction or, as it were, get out of Haran and go where we were supposed to go or be in the first place. And, you know, perhaps the death of Terah, his father, mentioned in the last verse of that chapter, maybe that was a reason to spur him on. Uh, we don't know, but perhaps that was the case. So we go to Genesis 12. We see that again, Abraham, as he's called, and he's called. I'm um, reading there in, in verses chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that blessed thee and curse him that cursed thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now there are commands in that passage of scripture and there are blessings, and it is a wonderful passage. Uh, I don't know if anybody here remembers Bill Randalls. He's, he's now with the Lord. He used to um, comment on verse 3, oh, bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And he used to say that that was God's foreign relations policy for his land, Israel. And I think his, his words are very true. And we might do all remember, do well to remember that when the topic comes up. It's a very, very strong word. And it applies now as it applied then, that um, it is a, Israel is God's land, and they're his people. And although for a season they, they've been put to one side and parked to one side, uh, we're to bear that scripture in mind. And um, it's sad to me when you see churches that um, preach replacement theology or the thought that Israel is superseded and no longer has a place. Now, Abraham, we learned there, he's 75 years old at that time. So there's no retirement age in the Lord. And he has submitted. He's he's, um, been obedient here, perhaps for the first time. He's submitted to God. He's separated from his kindred, and he's made that journey to Canaan. Perhaps the only negative in that passage is that Lot accompanies him. And Lot is not in the same mold as Abraham. If anything, we could say that Lot typifies the worldly Christian, and Lot, or the worldly Christian, Lot became a hindrance to Abraham, and the worldly Christian can be a hindrance to the, the true believer. At Shechem, we find that God appears to Abraham and promises descendants the land. And here we have the first case here at Bethel of Abram building an altar unto the Lord, and we find as we go through his life, he builds many altars, but we don't see the same of Lot. So it's something that, that uh, is special and peculiar to Abraham. He really sought after the Lord, and he really wanted to please the Lord. Now, the account later on in that chapter tells us that there was a famine in the land of Canaan, and Abraham and his family went to Egypt, and Egypt, of course, is a picture of the world. And it's interesting... That, um, again, you see it several times in the Bible, that Abraham, having built the altar and having dedicated it to the Lord, is tested. And as in many cases, the test is not passed because he goes down to Egypt. goes into that place which represents the world. I don't believe the Scripture tells us that he was told to do that. So we see again his frailty and his weakness at this early stage of his walk come through because... There's something he does that's not very good. He exposes Sarai to danger by asking her to deceive the Egyptians about her marital status. Now I just thought that it would be worth commenting here that the husband-wife relationship in God's eyes is most important. and That's why we see such, a, such an attack on biblical marriage. The husband is called to cleave to his wife and they should be as one. The husband should be prepared to lay down his life just as Jesus laid down his life for the church. And um, we'd have to say that Abraham was not demonstrating the role of a good husband there. He was exposing her rather than, than protecting her. And he may have had his reasons, and you know we can talk about the, the fear that may have led him to do that, but the, um, the bottom line is he didn't do what he should have done. And uh, God sends, we read in the chapter, plagues on Pharaoh's household, in order to protect Sarai. Now, when Pharaoh said to Abraham, What is this that thou hast done unto me? That was a low point. And I put a question here: how embarrassing is it is as a Christian when you're convicted of wrongdoing by an unbeliever. It's not a good, a good thing or a nice thing to happen. And uh, perhaps this happened to, to some of us here at different times. You know, it's interesting that a non-Christian can have good morals and manners. And my comment would be here that we need to be careful that we don't have a superior attitude as Christians and that when we're in to people, particularly the unsaved, we do it from a point of humility, that we don't think that we are the better ones. We are ourselves, but saved, just saved sinners. Now we go on to Genesis 13. I'm just flicking through these these chapters in Genesis just to um, point out the, the the path of Abraham's life. We read there in chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, and Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. And Abraham was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. So materially, he was well blessed. And despite the bad things that happened in Egypt, Abraham and Lot, they leave with these great riches. And it's something perhaps like, like or akin to the Exodus when the children of Israel left and they, they carried all the, the, uh, the goods and riches of Egypt with them, and um, it was interesting to reflect there was no altar in Egypt, and uh, but he returns again to the altar at Bethel and calls again on the name of the Lord, and as I said earlier, we never hear Lot's name mentioned when it comes to altars of worship, or to the the honor and the praise of God. know, there's a further test of Abram's faith of submission when just at this time there's strife between. Lot's herdsmen, and Abram calls for Lot's Lott, herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen, and, L- and uh, he calls for Lot to separate himself and his belongings. Now we'll see here another growth in the faith and in the character of Abram, because what does he do? He says to Lot, um, you take whichever your first pick is. So he's foregoing his right as the 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 senior person or the senior family member, and for the sake of peace, he's giving Lot the first choice, and that shows to me a Christian trait or a Christian character trait. In the world's terms, this is what we call weakness. And what does Lot do? He picks what appears to be the choicest land, of course. So Lot typifies, we could say, the Christian who walks by by sight and not by faith, and he's seduced by what he sees and readily leaves the man who communes with God and who has the wisdom of God in his life. And he goes to a place that appears to be good, yet in in reality it's Sodom. It's a place of wickedness and debauchery and all those things we know about. You know, later we see in the account how lush, he barely escapes judgment. And the point I would make here again, just, just as a learning point for us, is when we as Christians walk too close to the world and are comfortable with its ways, we forget that just like Sodom, it's going to be judged and destroyed. So this world is passing. And to put our efforts or a greater greater efforts and a greater emphasis on accumulating and and building up for this world, it's not a wise move at all. And again, later on in chapter 13, God notices this. He notices this change in Abram. And we read that because um, he does this, he repeats the promise. But the promise this time is expanded. It's uh, more than what he would have got if he had taken the first choice um, between him and Lot. It's the whole land as far as the eye can see, north to south and east to west. And again, Abram shows his devotion to God by building another altar at Hebron. So Abram definitely is a builder of altars. In chapter 14 we come to this account of Abraham and the kings. And uh, we see that Lot here, obviously Lot has gone to reside in Sodom, and he gets caught up in what is an international conflict. So the five cities of the plain, including Sodom and Gomorrah, they rebel against the confederacy of foreign kings, and they're led by this character, who has quite a long-winded name to pronounce, Chidor Leomer, and they're taken captive. And when Abraham hears of this, he has his own, he organizes his own private militia to perform a rescue. And the foreign kings, we read in the account, they're defeated. And Lot, all of his goods and the people, are rescued. Now at this point, the king of Sodom, he wants to go out and, and to greet Abraham, perhaps to pat him on the back. But Abraham first has a strange encounter with Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. And if you look through the the the, uh, the Old Testament scripture, you'll see... That there's always a very clear separation between the priesthood, the Levites and the kings, the line of the kings. But Melchizedek is different. Jesus Christ is different and the born again Christian are different. There are three exceptions. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, he breaks bread and wine and blesses Abraham and he receives a tithe of all. And straight after that, it's very interesting how, the, how the Melchizedek is just interposed, but straight after that we, we read that he encounters the king of Sodom and he refuses any material payment from the king of Sodom lest the king of Sodom would say that he had made Abraham rich. So the the lesson for us there is that gifts of material power or wealth from the world, it comes with a price and invariably it comes with a catch or a hook on it. There's always a price to pay. The other thought that I, that, that I, I, I take from that is that all of us, we're going to encounter one of two princes, either the prince of this world, Satan, or the prince of peace. And there's no sitting on the fence. You have to choose which prince we're going to serve. And I think we could say that Losh perhaps sat on the fence in his life at Sodom. And we get a good idea of the effect of that had on Losh. And we read a very well-known scripture we all know here this morning, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. And it says, In turning the cities of Sodom, and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for this righteous man, or that righteous man, dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their awful deeds. Sodom and Gomorrah are still very much with us today, not the original cities, of course, but there's so much sexual perversion and corruption in the world, and because of the, inter- of the internet and all the, the technology, there's a never-present temptation, even for the believer, and it's a lot closer than we think. In verse 15 and 16, again, following Abraham, we see an example of God's way and man's way. And Genesis 15 opens with a vision, and it's the first use of the words, fear not, in the Bible. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So you have to say, when you look through Abraham's life, he's getting so many continuous encounters and promises and, and just repetitions of covenant. It's um, quite, a, quite a remarkable series of events for this man's life. We read further that he specifically promised an heir from his own body, and he's promised descendants as the number of the stars. And we read in that uh, great verse of chapter 15, verse 6, and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Such a powerful scripture. The covenant is renewed in this particular chapter, but it's a different covenant, it's an unconditional covenant. That's made by God without the participation of man. I won't go into the details, but you remember that account of the the, um, the animals being split down the middle, and the the Lord putting Abram into a deep sleep, and the Lord went up between the the uh, partitioned animal, and with a smoking torch, and made that covenant. So it's a covenant that uh, man is not part of, made by God. God reveals in, during the dream to Abram that his people will be slaves for 400 years in a foreign land. So again, a remarkable um, inter- or exchange between God and King Abraham, the, the things that he's been uh, made aware of and told. Abraham was told by God the full extent of the promised land. And it's not just the previous account of as far as the eye can see. It's from the river to the sea. And and again, you know, that caused a lot of offense to many, but the, the real size of the promised land is a lot bigger than current-day Israel. Now again, as in the previous chapters, in chapter 16, we see a high point followed by a low point. Abraham again displays his weakness. He's just been told by God that, that you know, he will have a descendant through his own body. But he ignores what he just had, what he just heard, and he um, was promised and he agrees to agrees to Sarai's scheme to um, have relations with Hagar and to produce an heir that way. So his fate had not reached yet the point where you could say he was totally obedient. You know, they probably thought they were helping God with the promise, and that saying in English comes to mind. It's not a biblical saying, but that's saying the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions. There's an element to that there. Sometimes we get in God's way when we try to help or interfere um, by doing it our own way. Ishmael is born, but he's not the true heir. Genesis 17, yet again the covenant is renewed. And God calls Abraham to walk before him and to be perfect. And my question is, is that sinless perfection? Well, the answer is if, if he walks before God, he will be perfect. And we have a scripture in the New Testament, if we walk in the spirit, and we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And we could do if we could do that 24-7, we would be perfect. But um unfortunately we still have fleshly bodies and we still struggle with the old man, so it's um, it's something we will not see till that day we see Jesus face to face. Now, an interesting thing happens here: Abraham's name is changed to Abraham, the father of many nations, and Sarai to Sarah, the princess of the multitude. And then the sign of the covenant, the circumcision of the males, is um, initiated. We go to chapter eighteen down, and we see the heavenly visitors that Abraham encounters and uh, the Lord appears again with uh, angels in human form at Mamre and Abraham and Sarah are promised a son and the faith is still not quite there yet Abraham is asked why Sarah laughs at the promise and yet we hear those encouraging words is anything too hard for the Lord how many times do we use that when we face difficult situations is anything too hard for the Lord and of course the answer is no Abraham then, or Abraham as he is now, Abraham, he's no longer Abraham, he's informed of the judgment to fall in Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, he shows his growing character because he has a concern because he wants to seek out righteous, righteous souls that may be in Sodom by interceding for them. You know, The more Abraham progresses, the more he's concerned for people and relationships and the lost than he is for material things. And um, that reminds me of Romans eight thirty four, where Jesus is shown at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So he had the heart of an intercessor. Then, of course, in chapter nineteen, we had the account of what happened Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, we all know what happened there was, it was, um, it was obliterated, for their sin, and it was judged, and all could see the judgment of God at work there. But a Lot had to be taken out by the angels out of there. And, you know, we said earlier on, you look back at his choice, he ended up losing everything. and He pays a heavy price for his earlier choices. He, his wife, is turned into a pillar of salt. His daughters um, have an incestuous relationship with him uh, under the influence of drink, and the, leading to the birth of Moab, and ben Ammi, Moab and the Ammonites. And these are the same daughters that he was willing to have abused by that wicked crowd that gathered outside of his home. So there's a lot going on in Lot's life, and it's negative. Then in Genesis 20, again, we learn that Abraham is not quite there yet because, again, he falls for deception. It really is a case of one step forward and two steps backward. But he's still walking with God, we'd have to say, overall. You know, there's hope for us when we look at that. And I draw hope from it because um, we experience the same sort of thing. Now he puts his wife Sarah in danger again. This time by asking Abimelech, asking her to deceive Abimelech just as he'd previously asked her to deceive Pharaoh. This time, of course, God warns, warns Abimelech in a dream that he's a dead man walking. You know, there are some interesting notes to make in that chapter. God, it says, withheld Abimelech from sinning. Again, a pagan king is more integrity than a man of God, and it should never be that way. But again, we have to, we have to take Abraham as the whole package. This is what happened. This is the, uh, the flawed side of his nature. Abraham prayed for Abimelech, and his whole, his whole household was healed. You know, the lesson we can take from that chapter is the flesh is always going to oppose us. And it will so, as I said that day, when we see Jesus face to face and the old man is finally done away but once and for all. Genesis 21, of course, is the great um, uh, answer to the promise because Isaac, the son of promise, is born. Hagar and Ishmael, are cast out, which, of course, upset Abraham. But God confirmed again, talking to Abraham, this amazing relationship. He, he heard so much from God that he was to do what Sarah or said to him and to put her out. And you would think that Abraham is now fully convinced of the goodness and the mighty power of God because he's seen so much. He's had so many encounters. He's seen the promise that was very hard to believe, that a man of his age and a woman of Sarah's age could produce a child. Yet, it's reality now. The child is there. Isaac is born. Another great test awaits Abraham and uh, of course that is Genesis 22 and it's the ultimate test of faith he puts God puts him through this ultimate test you know if you read verse 2 of chapter 22 Genesis you find the word love is used and it's the first time love is used in the Bible who does Abraham love more the son he's waited so long for or God would Isaac become an idol? You know, Luke 14, 26 is a very powerful scripture. It says there, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So the cost of discipleship is, can be very high. Abraham believed what God said about him being the father of a multitude. Uh, His faith, I believe, we can see in this chapter, was such that he could take the life of Isaac and believe that God would raise him from the dead in order to fulfill that promise. He knows that God can fulfill promises. He knows the power of God. He knows that God can do the impossible. He's seen it. The God who can bring forth a child from such an elderly couple, could he also raise Isaac if Isaac was to be offered up? And the answer, of course, would be Yes but God withholds the hand with the dagger in it and Isaac is spared. And it's an amazing chapter of Scripture. It shows now that Abraham has truly become the father of faith. And perhaps he had a glimpse of what hap- would happen in the same place where he was 2,000 years later. And it's an interesting scripture in John 8:56, And Jesus speaking he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So perhaps Abraham had a window into the future and into the significance of what was happening on the mount that day. And uh, I'll just finish up with a few conclusions and lessons, because I believe there are a lot of lessons and things in there, but I've just listed a few, and it's not exhaustive. Abraham had to grow in faith over a long period of time, and I think it's the same for us. We are a work in progress. We are being changed. conform to his image day by day and it's not instantaneous and we have to encounter a lot of struggles a lot of trials along the way Abraham's faith was tested ours certainly will be also Abraham trusted in God and not in his own efforts and we have to be the same Abraham had a flaw many flaws in his character we've just seen them and so do we you know, we read in Hebrews 11 verse 10, just closing with this, that um, it says there that Abraham looked for a city which had found foundations, his builder and maker is God. He did not live for this world, and the lesson there is neither should we. And there are probably many more lessons, but I'll close on that. So, so the Lord bless one and all this morning, and I hope that uh, we can benefit from that and learn something from it.